everybody, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles, the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan, and joining me is Corey Howitt, who looks 12. Corey, is this like a weird Benjamin Button sort of a thing? You know, when I shave my beard, everyone mistakes me for being one of the youth kids in my youth group, of which I am the youth pastor of. But yes, this is very much like Benjamin Button. Man, yeah, I would definitely card you if you came into my bar to buy alcohol. Anyway, guys, <laughs> thank you so much for tuning into the show. Hope you guys are doing well. If you are a new time listener, how this works is basically every week we will recap the previous week's episode. However, every single one of these episodes actually builds on each other because we're going through the Bible as a single unified story. And because of that, each episode builds on the narrative themes and elements that were brought out last week. Therefore, to get the best overall experience and to understand exactly what we're talking about, I would highly recommend that you actually go back and listen to all of the episodes in order to get all of the context, to get all of the themes that were set up in prior episodes so that when listening to this one, you are at a better position to understand everything that we're talking about. That being said, if you do not have the opportunity to go back and listen to all of the other ones, if you're short on time or whatever, we're going to go ahead and give the recap of last week's episode. So last week, we got into another new character, Jacob, and started talking about him. Well, a few weeks back, we had been talking about Abraham. And when talking about Abraham, we began by asking the question, is this the guy? And by the guy, we mean the guy that is mentioned in Genesis 3.15, when God actually promises after all of the curses and everything, God still promises that there's going to be a seed who's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. So we're expecting this guy to come. And so is Abraham that guy? And we answered that with an, a, a big no, but we were waiting for his son. You know, Abraham receives a promise and he's going to receive offspring. And so we're waiting for Abraham to receive a son. Isaac finally comes up on the scene. And then just as fast as he comes up, he's gone. So he's not the guy. And now we introduce the new character, Jacob. So we ask the question, is he the guy? Well, the first thing he really does is he deceives his father for the blessing and deceives his brother for the birthright. So if he's the guy, he's a pretty terrible guy. He's not the guy. So Jacob, he comes on, he deceives his brother, says, hey, I want your birthright, and then I'll give you some of this stew. His brother Esau, who is so hungry and famished after having worked in the field, goes, okay, fine, you can have my birthright. The text says that Esau despises his birthright because of this. And then later on, when it comes time for Isaac to actually pass the blessing on, Jacob goes up and deceives his father, who at this point is actually blind or close to it, and tricks his father into thinking he's Esau, puts some hairy gloves on, gives his father some stew, and actually inherits the blessing. As a result, Esau is left with nothing. And so we get a very angry Esau. We get Jacob, having received the blessing, fleeing from Esau because of his stealing of the blessing. And that pretty much brings us to today. Uh, we did actually see last week Jacob marry uh, Rachel and Leah. So he goes after he flees and he ends up back with his kinsmen, which is a really weird thing. We did touch on that because Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees and he was called to a new land away from his people. And so when Isaac then comes time to find a wife, Abraham sends a servant to go back to the to his people to find a wife for Isaac. And he specifies very clearly that he does not want Isaac going back to the homeland. So that's why he sends the servant. Then all of a sudden, Jacob, after fleeing, goes back to this land that Abraham was very specific in not wanting Isaac to go to. And he goes there, he finds Laban, and he finds Rachel and Leah. So he ends up getting married to Leah after being tricked by Laban uh, for working for him for a little while. Laban gives him Leah. He goes, what the heck? This isn't what I worked for. And so he works a little longer for Rachel. So after having gotten married to Rachel, 
we now get into Jacob's sons. Corey, did I miss anything in that recap? No, great recap. Um, but for those of you who are looking through the Bible and looking for um, Jacob's return to his homeland, you'll notice that um, he goes back to Haran, which we talked about a few episodes ago now that um, Terah, that is Abraham's father, was heading towards Canaan, but he stopped in Haran and it was in Haran that God calls Abram to get up and go to the land that he will show him. And so theologically, it's important that Abraham comes from Ur of the Chaldees. That's why we keep mentioning it. Um, but if you're trying to follow along in just uh, the last chapter, um, you'll notice that Jacob goes to Haran because that's where um, Terah stopped and his other sons, like Nahor, Abraham's brother, is still there. So that's where um, Jacob finds Rachel and Leah and their father Laban. So he's in Haran, um, which is just one leg of the journey short from going totally back to Babylon, which um, Ur of the Chaldees, um, the Chaldeans is another name for the Babylonians. So yeah, just um, a little help for those trying to follow along with this. But otherwise, great recap. And let's just go ahead and get on with this episode. And so we're going to start um, right where we left off, which is at chapter 29, verse 31. And this is going to be a long section of Jacob's children, all 11 of them. Then there will be a 12th later. Uh, so we're just going to try and briefly go over these and, and point out the kids and their names and the significance of their names. Um, but first thing, starting off, is that we have another similar theme. Um, it starts off saying that Yahweh opened Leah's womb because she was hated, but Rachel was barren, right? So this happened with um, both Isaac and Abraham's wife. Uh, Sarai and Rebekah each had this problem. Um, now Isaac, although he gets little screen time, and he clearly wasn't the guy, he gave us some, some good things to look for and to take after. Um, that we should hope to see from his descendants. Uh, for example, when Rebecca was barren, Isaac prayed and God opened up her womb. Um, but Rachel was just barren and they just kind of dealt with it as they saw best in their own eyes. We start um, seeing children that Leah bears. And so Leah has her first son named Reuben. And when she has Reuben, she says, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And so Reuben literally means see a son. And so it goes on, the next verse. And then she had another son named Simeon. And she says, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And Simeon sounds like the Hebrew word for heard. And so it's a playoff of words saying that God has heard me, so gave me Simeon. And then the next verse, she has Levi. And Leah says, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And again, the Hebrew word for Levi sounds like attached. So they're doing all sorts of name plays where Reuben literally meant see a son. Um, and now it's, we're going to see lots of this name sounds like this. And it continues that same pattern in uh, Judah. In Judah, next verse, verse 35, Leah says, this time I will praise the Lord. And Judah sounds like to praise in Hebrew. And so this is the start of chapter 30 now. Um, Rachel can't bear any children. She's jealous of her sister. And she exclaims, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob gets angry at her because he's like, what what can I do? I'm not God. And so Rachel does what she thinks is best in her own eyes and gives her husband, her servant, Bilhah. And we've seen this before. This is what Abraham and Sarai do. So in the examples given of 
Jacob's father and grandfather. We see Isaac do the right thing in praying for his wife and Abraham and Sarai resulting to go into a servant. This is what Rachel and Jacob decide to do. And so Bilhah, for Rachel, gives birth to Dan, uh, chapter 30, verse 6. And Rachel says, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. So Dan sounds like judge. And then in the next verse, she says, uh, when Naphtali is born, she says, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. And the Hebrew word for Naphtali sounds like the Hebrew word for wrestling. And so this is going on and down in uh, chapter 30, verse 9. She's, uh, she can't give birth to any more children for the moment being. And so Leah gives her servant named Zilpah to Jacob. And then Zilpah for Leah gives birth to Gad, um, saying that good fortune has come. And that's a Hebrew word that, again, sounds like another Hebrew word for good fortune. And then Zilpah gives birth to Asher in verse 13. And she says, happy am I, for women have called me happy. And Asher is um, a close variation of the word blessed that comes up a lot in the Psalms. Um, so in Genesis, when you see the word blessed, it's usually the Hebrew word barak or baraka. As you get into the Psalms, you will see the Hebrew word ashrei. Um, and so it's really similar in meaning. So asher, close variation for the word blessed, ashrei, or happy. And then Leah, um, she has some more children herself now. And you go down to verse 18. Um, she has Isaacar, and she says, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. And she calls Isaacar wages, which is, again, a word that sounds like another word, because Leah's son had gotten some uh, mandrakes. Uh, Rachel asked for some. And Leah says, well, I'll give you my son's mandrakes if you let me sleep with Jacob for the night. So they're making trades now for who can sleep with Jacob. And so it's just not going well. And it's all a battle against one another. And it really comes out as we see the name Isaacar come up and as they're making deals for who gets to sleep with Jacob. And then Zebulun. And she says in verse 20, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. And the word Zebulun sounds like the Hebrew word for honor. So she's saying her husband will honor her. And then there's a really short verse of, then Leah also bore Dinah. And then the next verse, God remembers Rachel. It's in verse uh, 22. And so verse 23, Rachel's words to having a son herself is, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. So Joseph literally means, uh, may he add. Um, but it also sounds like has taken away. So it's kind of a twofold thing. God's taken away her reproach. And may the Lord add another son. And so at this time, um, this is all the children that Jacob has with his two wives and each of their maidservants. Later on, we'll pick up in chapter 35, and that's when Rachel gives birth to Benjamin, which she wants to call him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow or strength. Um, but then Jacob renames him Benjamin, son of my right hand. Um, but we'll get a little bit more on that story once we get to chapter 35. Um, so yeah, there's all of Jacob's sons and one daughter. Dylan, anything else um, that we should be looking for or anything else to add to this? Nothing else on the sons. Let's go ahead and keep moving. We've got a lot of ground to cover in this episode. We're going to try to get from 30 all the way through 36 today and give you guys some big picture on what's going on. So we got the sons and the one daughter, uh, side note, mentioned now. 
with that, let's go ahead and continue to follow Jacob and Jacob's story and see how God actually works, not necessarily because of Jacob, but in spite of Jacob. So in 30 verse 25 and on now, we start to see uh, Jacob's prosperity. And so we really do start to see Jacob inheriting that blessing that he seemed to have conned himself into from his father and his brother. But God, in spite of Jacob, like I already said, does in fact bless him. So Laban, who we've seen in the story up to this point, doing kind of some nefarious things himself, goes on to continue to try to con the conner. Uh, if your name is Connor, I apologize. Anyway, scam the scammer. Maybe that's a better way to put it. So Jacob wants to leave Laban now. And that is important because of the fact that ultimately what we are hoping for is we are hoping that Jacob will ultimately return to the blessed land. Like we talked about at the beginning of this episode, it isn't really good that Jacob actually left and went back to Haran and it went back to his people. So we are hoping for that. So as soon as Jacob says, hey, I want to leave, we should be pray, you know, we should be celebrating in our minds, going, yeah, that's what we're wanting. But Laban actually wants him to stay. And so Jacob devises this plan where basically he says, Hey, if I have, you know, if I, I'll, I'll watch your sheep and you give me a certain payment of all that the sheep bear. So basically, all of the speckled and spotted sheep and the ones that are black, and basically all of the misfit sheep, if they bear other misfit sheep, those sheep belong to me. However, if they bear good sheep, you know, normal looking sheep, those sheep will belong to you. And so he does this weird sort of thing where basically he takes a stick and kind of shaves it with a knife. And so you see kind of the exposed stick on the inside and he places it in the trough. And so whenever the sheep mate near this trough with the stick in it, they actually produce sheep that Jacob is able to keep for himself. However, whenever he does not place that stick in the trough, the sheep mate and they produce sheep that Laban is able to keep. And there's some speculation on this as to what exactly that means. It's not something that you actually normally do when breeding sheep. And so that's not really the point. The point ultimately is that God is actually blessing Jacob. And we're going to see that in Jacob's dream when Jacob actually says that I saw a God, Yahweh, and I saw a bunch of speckle and spotted sheeps all mating. And God actually told me that I was going to get all of these sheep. So we see that God is working through this and blessing Jacob and giving him riches and prosperity, even in spite of the fact that he's with Laban in the land that is not the optimum location for him at this point. So moving on then from 30 into 31, we get to a point where ultimately Jacob flees from Laban. And this is kind of odd in the respect that ultimately it gets to a point where Jacob is actually prospering so much as a result of him taking care of Laban's possessions that ultimately God swings things from Laban all the way to Jacob to where Jacob actually is receiving all of Laban's stuff. You know, he's breeding the sheep and the sheep are constantly producing sheep that Jacob is able to keep as his wages. Laban keeps trying to change Jacob's wages like we're going to see. And yet Jacob still prospers and Laban actually receives less and less. And as a result, Jacob gets to a point where he's like, oh gosh, I got to get out of here or this dude's going to do something to hurt me. And so that's where we're going to pick up in 31. Before we jump there though, Corey, do you have anything to add on chapter 30 that I might have missed? Um, there's one little detail that's important, and it's in um, just in the very first few verses of this section, 30 verse 27 in particular, um, where Laban admits that, that God, or Yahweh, has blessed Laban on account of Jacob. But the way in which he figures it out, he says, I've figured out that God has blessed me on account of divination. And um, divination is something that God really does not condone for his people, Israel. And it says it's something evil. If you're uh, practicing divination and trying to get divine oracles, you're messing with some 
bad spirits. Um, and so the fact that Laban is um, using divination to find these type of things out, um, we should be skeptical of Laban. So we've already seen Laban cheat Jacob into working for him for 20 years, where you know it was originally going to be seven years for Rachel, but then he switches Leah for Rachel on his wedding night. You know, seven more years for Leah, and then he will work an extra six years for this flock. And so we should be a little bit skeptical, although it says that Laban asks for favor from the eyes of Jacob. It might not be all that well-meaning on Laban's part. And that verse and couple verses kind of leads us to think Laban might not be so on board with blessing Jacob. Um, And then, in fact, when sending um, his sheep out with Jacob, Laban takes all the speckled and dark sheep and goats and sends it with his son. So he tries to keep all the speckled and spotted sheep away from Jacob originally. And so, again, the fact that um, God did anything for Jacob is just all on account of God, um, despite Jacob and despite now Laban. Yeah. So God is actually working in this situation, as he often does, in spite of his human agents, instead of because of them. We've already seen that same exact situation with almost every single Bible character that we've seen so far, the only Bible character, Abraham, who God kind of works with, it's because Abraham believes God, and that's accredited to him as righteousness. But again, it's not because of anything that Abraham actually did. Instead, it's simply as a result of him believing God, and therefore that, that faith being accredited to him as righteousness. And that's a theme that we're going to pick up on later in the Bible that's going to be Huge. But anyway, let's get back to Jacob and jump into chapter 31 as Jacob flees now from Laban as a result of Laban, or as at least as a result of Jacob thinking that Laban is now mad at him for having prospered under Laban. So picking up in chapter 31, the Lord says, to Jacob, this is in verse three, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now, we should be cheering, going, yes, okay, here we go. This is what we've been waiting for. We need and are looking for Jacob to return to the land of his fathers. So in verse four, Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I can see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have sev- you know that I have served your father with all of my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If you said the spotted one shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if you said the striped one shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and has given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream, this is the dream I was talking about just a minute ago, that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and molted. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all of the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, Go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then, and this is important, Rachel and Leah answered him and said, Is there any portion of our inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So that's really important. So you get Leah and Rachel actually agreeing to go with Jacob to flee from their father and to go into a foreign land. We've already seen this theme established with Rebecca. She agrees to go to a foreign land, leave her people, and to marry someone she doesn't know. And we're going to eventually see this again coming up uh, in another key character, Ruth. But this is very big in the respect that these girls, these ladies, are agreeing to go with Jacob and actually return now to the land of promise with Jacob, with all of his sons, and with all of the wealth that he's now accumulated as a result of God blessing him. Now, it is very important to note at this point, Laban did not make Jacob 
rich. Instead, it was in fact God as a result of Jacob being the inheritor of the blessing. God has blessed Jacob with riches. So Jacob arises, he takes his wives, and then he flees from Laban. Now there's kind of an odd thing that gets mentioned here in chapter 31. And that is when they flee, Rachel takes Laban's household gods. And that's kind of an odd thing to have happen. And the text seems to kind of be silent as far as making a judgment call one way or the other. What the heck is going on? Corey, what do you make of Rachel taking the household gods? Yeah, it's a little clue. I'm hinting, uh, I think, just that Rachel's character um, and the state of Jacob's household it's we've seen a lot of flaws in Jacob, and so we're seeing um, as well as with the birth story as we just read, um, the fact that both of his wives are wanting to compete with one another and give them um, their servants, just as Sarai did. Um, his house isn't in order. Rachel is doing wickedly, um, not knowing from her husband that God should be their God. And you, you kind of see this in Jacob's talk as well. Um, we haven't really seen Jacob own that this God, Yahweh, is his God. When he talks about God, he usually talks about the God of his father or the God of Abraham. So um, he doesn't call God my God. He'll talk about, you know, sometimes God did something to me. But even just up above in um, chapter 31, verse 5, he says, the God of my father has been with me. And so he doesn't really take on living for Yahweh. He doesn't charge his family with living for Yahweh. And so they're all just kind of doing what's best in their own eyes. And um, yet the most amazing thing through it all is God still blessing them. And so that, that's how I take this little detail. Um, Rachel stealing her household, her, her father's household God. That little detail is just kind of building a case building on Jacob's life and family that we'll continue to see through this episode. Yeah, and one other thing, this kind of compares Rachel with Jacob. Jacob cheated his father out of the blessing, and he cheated his brother out of the blessing and receives all of the inheritance as a result of his cheating. And in similar fashion, Rachel steals the household gods. She flees with Jacob with all of her father's money. And so it's kind of creating a, a interesting comparison between these two characters. It's an interesting aside. And so the story goes on and Laban actually tracks them down and accuses them of stealing something from him. Interesting note, however, Jacob does not know anything about Rachel's treachery. He doesn't know that she took the household gods. And as a result, Jacob is actually vindicated and able to say, I have no idea what you're talking about when Laban approaches him. And so Laban actually goes and searches through all of uh, Jacob's stuff, all of his wife's stuff, and doesn't end up finding the gods because of the fact that Rachel is actually sitting on them. She puts them in the saddlebag of her camel and sits on them and then claims that she's on her menstrual cycle when Laban comes into the tent to search for them so that she doesn't have to get up. Interesting little trick there. So Jacob is actually justified in saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. Laban accuses him of fleeing and saying, you shouldn't have fled. Instead, you should have told me that you're going to leave so I could have given you a blessing, so I could have sent you off with merriment and harps and things like this. Uh, but instead, you fled. So Laban is frustrated by this. So as a result, they actually decide to cut a covenant between the two of them. So in verse 51, Laban says to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar, which I have set between you and me, this heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you. And you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his grandchildren and his daughters, and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned 
home. So there is a covenant then that is cut between Jacob and between Laban so that neither one of them will cross over to actually harm the other one. So they are at peace for the time being. Speaking of peace, we are going now into chapter 32, where we don't seem to have much of it. As a matter of fact, this is now going to be the reunion between Jacob and his brother Esau, whom he cheated. I wonder how that's going to go down. Before we jump into chapter 32, Corey, do you have anything to touch on, anything to add that I have missed or that you would like to say? Some little points to some little common threads. Um, as Laban is chasing down Jacob, God appears to Laban in a dream and says, don't speak to him good or bad. Um, the same words that talk about the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of Tov and Ra. And so God says, don't speak to him, Tov or Ra. And Laban confronts him and says, hey, I have the power to do you Ra'ah, but God appeared to me and told me not to say anything Tov or Ra to you. So just another example of God trying to warn people not to make um, decisions of wisdom in their own eyes. So Laban there was prevented to make a decision between Tov and Ra, where he had the power over him to do Ra'a, says a couple of times. Um, in fact, and that's what um, the pillar that they call Mizpah means. They put that pillar there, call it Mizpah, and that way no one can pass over this keep and you cannot do Ra'a to me, or we cannot do Ra to each other. That's all I want to point out there. Um, so yeah, the time of peace and uh, prosperity for Jacob moving forward, as it moves on into chapter 32, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And that literally just means two camps in Hebrew. Jacob is giving instructions to uh, all of his servants and family about when he meets Esau. Uh, by the way, I've been told I say Esau weird. I always pronounce the U. It's Esau. So forgive my Esau like a sow of a pig. I'm just going to go with it. And I just wanted to point that out so you'll just notice it every time I say Esau's name now. And so Jacob's warning all of his family members and his servants, okay, this is what you're going to do when you meet up with Esau. You're going to say, hey, I'm from Jacob. He sent me before you and here's some gifts from him. And the way in which he orders his camp is uh, he puts those he uh, loves the most towards the back and those he cares about the least towards the front. So that if Esau freaks out, that Jacob's coming back. If any, if there's any casualties, the ones he cares about least will perish first. Um, however, we see Jacob call out to God in verses 9 through 12. And he calls out to God, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Yahweh who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. And he just asked, that in verse 11, that he would deliver me from the hands of my brother. And that, you know, if he comes to attack me, whatever, that you would protect me, Lord. And so he calls upon God and God answers. And so um, when he's getting ready to go and finally meet Esau, um, we're confronted or interrupted with another story. A pretty significant story. It's when uh, Jacob wrestles with God. And so it says in verse 22, the same night that Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children, and crossed the fort of the Jabbok, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else they had. And so Jacob was left alone. And in that second part of verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And they're, they're at a stalemate. They're both wrestling. No one can prevail against the other. And the man touched Jacob's hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And the man says, let me go for the day has broken. 
And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he asked, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And so Jacob called the, the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose, and he passed Penuel, and he was limping because of his hip. And there's this other really interesting piece of information tagged on to the end of chapter 32, saying, Therefore, to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Very interesting story. Uh, Jacob, who is the man wrestling with Jacob? If that was a question directed at me, your guess is as good as mine. But let's work through it. The text seems to suggest that this man who is wrestling with Jacob is, in fact, God. And there's a couple of key text cues that would lead us in this assumption. And the first is in verse 28, when it says, then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, this particular verse could actually be indicative of Jacob's entire life up until this point. So everything we know about the character Jacob can be described by him wrestling with God and with man and somehow prevailing. Uh, he's consistently cheating others out of things, and he's con consistently wrestling with God, and yet he does in fact prevail. God does in fact bless him. But in a more direct sense, this particular verse could be referring specifically to this instance where Jacob is actually currently wrestling with God and has prevailed in getting God to bless him as a result. And secondly, it says in verse. 30, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So, so he's actually looking at God face to face in this instance, and yet his life is spared. The only thing he walks away with is this injured hip. So both of those things in this particular text seem to suggest that this is in fact God that Jacob is wrestling with. Moreover, uh, if you look further into the Hebrew Bible in Hosea 12, verses 4 through 6, it does in fact suggest that this is God that Jacob is wrestling with as well. So uh, operating then under the assumption that this is in fact God or the angel of the Lord, who is himself God, that Jacob is wrestling with, we get this interesting picture of, of Jacob and his renaming, him being renamed Israel. So he actually physically wrestles with God and is able to get God to bless him because of his struggle. So this is a physical representation of the life of Jacob that has, you know, that has transpired up until this point where everything that's happened is Jacob consistently wrestling. Like, would you really want that to be said about you as your legacy? Like you've struggled and wrestled with humans and with God, and yet you've prevailed and, you know, in spite of your, your wrestling, probably not Jacob. He wrestles with God. It's just a, a weird story that creates for us this picture of Jacob as this one who's struggling. It's very interesting. Corey, anything else to add on that before we move on? Yeah. Again, it's just a, an interesting story. It just seems ever clear as we read it in its full context and the life of Jacob and his family and even the way in which God um, acts with his people and with these characters we've seen so far that we shouldn't make heroes of the characters, which we say every week. Um, but a lot of people say like, oh, when someone's renamed, it's like a really big moment and they're getting renamed as a blessing. And so Jacob getting renamed because he wrestled with God, again, based on all of Jacob's life so far, he's wrestling with God and people, yes, which isn't a good thing. And he's prevailing but not on his own accord. The only reason why he's prevailing is because God is blessing him despite him. And that's a, a term we use a lot. Um, you know, God is blessing Jacob despite Jacob. 
And we can say that about ourselves. God blesses us despite us. We get in the way a lot. But we, we shouldn't be confused and say, oh, since God is blessing, it must be for good behavior. Um, and that's just not the case. And again, it goes back to God's covenant and promise to bless Abraham and his offspring. And God made that covenant with himself in chapter 15. And so we're going to see God continue to do this. And we're going to see Jacob continuing to live this hard life, um, struggling. Even at the end of his life, he goes on to say, Few and evil have been the days and the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And so even Jacob realizes that his life hasn't been that good. Definitely has been blessed by God, but he's done a lot to warrant just destruction and um, warrant evil coming into his life. Moving on into Jacob finally meeting his brother Esau. So that was a, a weird little... Um, aside before he goes in. Um, so Jacob's coming into this with a limp because his hip got taken out of socket. And so again, Jacob sends his least favorites first with the favorites last. He sends many gifts to appease Esau. So again, we see Jacob doing what he does. He schemes and he plans to try and um, change the way that people perceive him or tries to cheat people of their stuff. And so he's trying to deceive and cheat Esau and just to loving him and receiving him graciously. But again, he doesn't have to do that. What he did in the last chapter that was right was he prayed in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 32. And so Esau just warmly welcomes Jacob. Um, in verse 4 of chapter 33, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept together. So this beautiful moment, um, all this acceptance had happened, and Esau's like, what's up with all this stuff? It's like, no, I just want to find favor in your sight. It's like, no, I can't do that. It's like, no, please, if I found favor in your hands, my brother, like, take all the things. So he takes the things, and Esau... Um, does this next thing a couple of times. He says, oh, let's journey on our way together. I'll, I'll go just ahead of you. And Jacob comes up with an excuse. Well, no, my little ones are frail. The nursing flocks, my little children. Um, we don't want to slow you down. And so Esau says, well, why don't I just leave some of my people with you? And again, Jacob denies Esau traveling with him in any way. He says, no, no, you, you just go on ahead and I'll meet up with you. And so another trickery of Jacob, Esau goes on ahead to the place where they thought they both were going. And Jacob takes a turn and he journeys to Sukkoth down in verse 17. And he built himself a house, made booths for his livestock. And so they come safely to there. And then... At the end of chapter 33, um, it sets up the scene for chapter 34. Uh, it says they come safely into the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And so before we leave um, this interaction with Esau and go on into the story that takes place in Shechem next, uh, Dylan, anything else? I only have one brief thing to say on chapter 33, and that is the fact that we see in Jacob and Esau's reunion that God's hand is in this. So Corey pointed out in chapter 32 that Jacob prays and that he sets the gifts and gets them ready and sends them over to Esau. And so basically Jacob and us as the reader, as a matter of fact, are kind of expecting Esau to behave in a negative fashion. We expect that because of Jacob's cheating him in the past, that Esau is going to be ticked. And then because of that, he is going to deal harshly with Jacob or potentially even kill him. And so we, like Jacob, are kind of biting our nails going, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And so Jacob, keeping with his kind of con man routine where he thinks he can kind of wiggle his way out of any situation, gets these gifts ready and sends them over to Esau, thinking that he can pacify Esau's anger. Ironically, Esau doesn't actually 
have any anger, but we do see that Jacob prays and he prays to God and says, God, deliver me from the situation, basically. And that's exactly what we see happen. So it's not a result of Jacob and his gifts and his conning, once again, that gets him out of the situation. Instead, it's a result of God's faithfulness. So we actually see in the prayer the deliverance for Jacob, not in the gifts that Jacob has devised as his escape plan. And so Esau and Jacob actually have a good reunion because God is faithful to both of them and actually blesses this. And God continues to bless Jacob in spite of Jacob. So that's all I have to say on chapter 33. Let's go ahead and jump into 34 and talk about Dinah. Yeah, so... As Jacob and his family comes into the town of Shechem, um, right when they get in there, it says, Now Dinah, this is verse 1 of chapter 34, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the woman of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And then it goes on to say that he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her and uh, Shechem spoke with his father, Hamor, saying, get this girl for my wife. Okay, so um, this is a terrible thing that Shechem does. He's the prince of the land, so he thinks he could do what he wants. After he does it, he speaks tenderly to her and says that he loves her. Um, so really messed up view of, of love. And so um, the author has a little bit of commentary on this down in verse 7. Um, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. And so now we're talking about, or we're talking like when Israel enters the land, talking like the things that God has set in place for his people to do and not to do. And so we're getting an idea of like, yeah, this is not something that's right if we had any you know questions or reservations before and so um jacob and his sons hear out hammer and shechem in their deal and so they asked that they could each exchange their daughters and their sons can marry each other's daughters and you know just have property and dwell and trade together and uh jacob's sons answer hamor deceitfully. That's in verse 13, where it says they actually answered him deceitfully. And so they said, yeah, this um, can work. Well, they say it can't, but there's a condition that will make it work. Uh, that's every male among you must be circumcised. And so this is a thing that our people must do. Going back to Genesis 17, God gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so this pleased Hamor and Shechem, and they get, you know, their family, the whole town, to go and get circumcised. And while they're in this condition, fast forward to once they get circumcised, and they're, they're in this condition of recovering from the circumcision, Levi and Simeon come through the town with swords and kill all the men of that town and plunder the city, all out of revenge for what they did to defile their sister. And... Jacob rebukes him in verse 30, towards the end of the chapter, saying, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And there the story just ends. And we go to a much happier chapter, happier story. Um, but yeah, so really um, terrible story. Again, Shechem raping Dinah and Jacob's sons doing what you would expect a son of Jacob to do at this point, um, or really any kin of Jacob. They go and trick people. So they trick uh, that whole town of Shechem to get circumcised just so that they can kill them off. Um, and although it is an evil thing, and the author says up in verse 7, like, this is a really outrageous thing that should not be done. Um, we get some more commentary that um, while God 
doesn't look on this in a good light at all. And he probably would have gotten some uh, revenge or punished them for this act. Um, as you go on to the end of Genesis, that ends with Jacob blessing his sons. Um, Levi and Simeon um, are remembered for this horrendous act of slaying the entire town and tricking them. And so for that reason, their inheritance gets slashed. Um, and so really gnarly story, bad chapter, bad deal by the sons, and also bad deal by Shechem um, and Hammer saying like, oh yeah, we'll just do this little act of circumcision, taking it very lightly um, to use it for trade essentially. Um, so this is something important to God that he commands all his people to do it. And they're ready to do it on a whim simply because it seems advantageous um, for getting this one woman and then many daughters of this people and trade with them. Anything else, Dylan? I think that pretty much sums up chapter 34. We only have a few minutes left and we're going to try to get through 35 and maybe 36 as well. So let's go ahead and keep rolling into chapter 35. So we have this weird story with Dinah that abruptly ends. And all of a sudden, jumping into 35, we get a completely different story that actually is happy. Like Corey says, where God blesses Jacob once again and kind of reiterates the covenant to Jacob himself. And so God says to Jacob, rise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So this is a location that we've already been with Jacob. And this is the location where Jacob actually has his dream and sees angels ascending and descending on this staircase to heaven. And so he goes back here. And interestingly, it says, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Well, what are the foreign gods that are with them? Well, we do know that at the very least, Rachel stole some foreign gods and still has them. So put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Get yourself ready to meet with Yahweh, the holy God. So that construction is something that we oftentimes see in the Hebrew Bible when people are getting ready to meet with Yahweh. Basically, purify yourself, make yourself holy because you're about to meet with the holy God, Yahweh who is wholly different than all of these other foreign gods. So they gave Jacob, that's all that are with Jacob, they gave him all the foreign gods that they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So that's interesting. Corey had a thought on that. I'll let him share that with you in just a moment. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob, so they didn't get attacked. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. So finally, we're back in the promised land where we're supposed to be and getting ready to meet with God. This should be a joyous celebration for us as the reader going, yes, this is what we we're expecting. This is what we we're wanting. Even though Jacob has had a rocky go at it and has definitely not been the ideal candidate, he's definitely not the guy from Genesis 3.15, but he is back in the promised land getting ready to meet with the promise or with the God who made the promise. And there he built an altar and called that place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called that name Alon Bakuth. An interesting aside. God appears to Jacob again at the same place. Uh, when he'd come from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he actually renames him again. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Where have we heard that before? Hint, hint, Genesis 2. We also get that in Abraham. So a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Where have we heard that before? Well, that was the exact same phraseology that was given to Abraham and Sarah. 
The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will also give you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob sent up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So we get God actually come down and again, recapitulate. I like that word. That just means reiterate. He reiterates the covenant. And so now we are, as the reader, met with Jacob back in the promised land, once again, receiving the blessing and covenant that Abraham and Isaac had received before him. It's being placed upon Jacob. We now have him where he's supposed to be with the blessing upon him. This is a great day. Corey, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll touch on the thing you had shouted out up in verse four really quick, where it says Jacob hid all these household gods and these rings that were in their ears, and he hid them under a terebinth tree. Um, it is a little odd. I think as readers, we should have some red flags going up. Like, why not just destroy them? Why hide them? And why hide them under a tree? So we'll see that under trees um, and terebinth trees is really common um, later on in the story where idol worship happens. So he's either saving them up for like a bad day to return to it, or he's going to cause someone else to fall into, you know, finding these gods and worshiping them. Um, It just doesn't seem like a wise thing to do. But also going back to the idea that we kept bringing up of the blessing of God being under tension, the fact that they're coming back into the land of Canaan that God has promised them, and God is recapitulating the blessing that he gave to um, Abraham and Isaac to Jacob. We should have some ease. Like the, the tension in the story is rising. We're decompressing a little bit. Okay. We're, we're still doing good. Like the, the blessing is still good. It has not been made null and void because Jacob has been um, deceitful. Um, however, um, we are still to wonder about Jacob's son. So the stories before and after this should, again, remind us of that idea of blessing under tension. After he calls the name of this place where he meets God, Bethel, the house of God. Um, really awesome point, high place in the story. And they were journeying from Bethel, some distance from Ephrath. This is continuing in verse 16. Rachel went into labor and she had a hard labor. And when she was at the hardest point of her labor, the midwife came up to her and said, don't fear, you have another son. And as she was dying, or the Hebrew says, as her, her soul was departing, she called the name of her son Ben-Oni. Ben-Oni simply means son of my sorrow or son of my strength. So it's kind of ambiguous. But his father named him Benjamin. And so, and this means uh, son of my right hand, which is a metaphor for strength, a Hebrew idiom. And so Rachel dies and she was buried um, on the way to Ephrath. And that is Bethlehem. So that's a pretty significant place. Um, that they're bringing up. And so before it's ever called Bethlehem, Rachel dies there and is buried them. And her tomb is put there. And it's there till this day, whatever day this is talking about, it's written in. And so the next big point of the story is that in verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Okay, so after Rachel dies, Reuben, his oldest son, sleeps with Rachel's servant, Bilhah. And so, not a good thing. And that's all we hear of it. And we're not going to hear about it again until Jacob blesses and curses his sons in chapter 49, towards the end of the book. And then it lists out all of uh, the sons of Jacob. And it mentions that Isaac uh, lived 180 years and Isaac also died. And he was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Okay, so 
Um, you know, significant that Isaac's life was old and full of days. Significant Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine. Significant that Rachel dies while in labor, but yet gives another son named Benjamin. To wrap up, um, chapter 36, we have another one of those lines where it says, these are the generations of, and this is for Esau, and it says that is Edom. And we have all of his descendants, and we can see again that um, the wives that he took weren't good wives to take. He takes them from the surrounding nations, which, um, you know, his parents and grandparents had warned him not to, that God had said, you know, basically, don't do that. And so he takes all these foreign women to be his wives. And then he goes on to talk about um, the different chiefs that are, you know, to be over the land of Edom. And so as you look through it, you'll see some names, and these names will become destinations of places um, that we'll see further in the story of Israel and as Edom pertains to them. And so we're not going to go too much into the genealogy of Esau, um, but we're going to end this whole struggle with Um, Jacob and his sons and his life that focuses on Jacob and Esau and his sons and in his life. And next time we will pick up on Jacob's sons focusing on Joseph. So this is the end of this section. So again, read through it. We kind of skimmed over a lot, went really fast. Uh, But again, the big takeaways, we see God's blessing continue through Jacob, despite Jacob. He is not a good guy. He's not the hero of the story in any way, shape, or form, but God chooses to bless him, and we should feel some relief about that. And now we're going to go and look to his sons and saying, okay, is any of his sons the guy? We now have 11 to choose from, and so is any of them going to be righteous in the eyes of the Lord? Are any of them going to reverse the curse that came in Genesis 3? Um, And so we already have a few hints from what Levi and Simeon and Reuben, um, the first three born children, have already done. They count themselves out. And so there's nine more boys to choose from. And we're going to see what's the deal with the blessed line and the blessed one to come. To reverse all things. Anything else to end with or to that we should hang on going out of this episode, Dylan? Instead of just assuming that because Dylan and Corey said it, it must be right, go and actually apply the principles that we're trying to teach you in these podcast episodes to the scriptures yourself. Read through them for yourselves and actually see the story that God has set in the scriptures come to life before your eyes. Don't just rely on our commentary of it. Again, we started this whole podcast by stating that we want you guys to gain Bible study methods through this podcast. Through seeing Corey and I use these Bible study methods, you guys then have the tools to go and study the scriptures for yourself. So keep that in mind as we go through these episodes. We're going to go ahead and completely wrap up there. Again, guys, thank you so much for tuning into the episode. As usual, if you would like to get in contact with us, ask us any questions or anything like that, the email address you can do that at is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. We will be having a Q&A episode up here soon. We're getting close to the ending of Genesis. When we do, we'll have a Genesis wrap-up episode as well, for, so stay tuned for those. The website is the Bible is a Story. Dot com. There you'll find the podcast as well as some blogs and things and other resources to help you guys in your Bible study journey. So go ahead and check that out. If you do want to support the show, you can do so in a bunch of different ways. You can pray for the show, of course. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. That is the number one podcast platform where reviews really do help out the visibility of the show. Also, don't forget to share it with your friends, tell people about it, post it on Facebook, whatever. All those things help out the show. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by going to thebibleisastory.com and clicking on donate, and that'll take you to the Patreon page, and that is the place to donate. We appreciate you guys who have supported us financially. And moving forward, 
Thank you guys so much for tuning into the show today. Last week, we discussed why we always use the word adios at the end of the episode and how it doesn't make any sense. It just kind of fell under that. Corey had a good suggestion that we should say instead. Corey, what was that suggestion? Shalom, adios. Shalom, adios, guys. Take care and have a good whatever time of day it is. <laughs>